Uh, how many here know uh, the Divine Comedy? Divine Comedy? Remember back to high school, maybe? English. Uh, Dante Alighieri wrote what's called the Divine Comedy. It's actually one of the best known pieces of literature in history. It's fostered other stories. It's fostered lots of Western art. Uh, Dante lived in the uh, late six, uh, 1200s and early 1300s. And this trilogy was his poetic allegory about the soul's search for God. I don't know if you can tell, this is actually one of the more famous images tied to his uh, story. It'll make sense here in a minute, maybe. But the story was this, the soul's search for God. And what does that look like? He was Roman Catholic, of course, so his story reflects Roman Catholic theology. So he wants to climb the mountain and get to God, and he finds out that his own sins don't allow him to do so. He can't take the straight route there. And so the Roman poet Virgil tells him, hey, I'll be your guide at least through part of this journey. So in the trilogy, part one is the divine inferno, or excuse me, Dante's Inferno, his version of hell. And Virgil is going to lead him through hell. It's a little different than if you read the Bible and you said this is what hell looks like, it's a lake of fire, whatever. His version doesn't look like that. And rather, think of something that looks... Um, I think of it as a strip mine. If you saw a strip mine, I'll show you another uh, picture here. Well, actually, I'll just do it now. Of a strip mine that... Hell was this multi-layer geography where you'd start on top, the widest, highest elevation, and then you'd wind down in these circular spirals, and, and every layer down goes deeper and narrower. And each layer represents a different kind of sin. And so he was sort of stratifying sin by least harmful to the most harmful. Those at the top, in fact, his first layer... You know, Roman Catholic theology was limbo. Neither heaven nor hell. But this place where unbaptized babies went. The Catholic Church, by the way, has changed its mind on the status or even the existence of limbo here just in the last five or ten years. But that was a limbo was alive and well when Dante wrote. And so noble pagans and unbaptized Catholics would go in limbo. And this was a place that was neither heaven nor hell, but it was sort of pleasant, kind of green and grassy but you weren't in God's presence, didn't have the pleasures of the delights of heaven. As you got to the second layer, you started hitting real sin and real consequences. And each level, the, what the sin was, its characteristics were reflected in the punishment that the people experienced on each successive level. So the second level uh, were those who were guilty of the sin of lust. And this is fictional, right? We all suffer temptations at least to all kinds of sins, but... Those who were on the level for lust, they were blown about by these stormy winds just like they'd been blown about in life by their own lusts. Back and forth, here and there. You got to the third level, it was those characterized by gluttony. Each successive layer going down, more significant. Fourth layer was greed. It was interesting, even back then, Dante put clergy, popes, and cardinals on this level. The church even then was known for just rapacious greed. In fact, being in the clergy was a way to become very, very wealthy back in the day. And at that level, those who were guilty of the sin of greed, they were strapped up front with this large weight and they would sort of uh, push against each other, almost a jousting match, 
And as they did, they accused each other of hoarding. In other words, you're guilty of greed, I'm not. Uh, But that's what's going on. They're all guilty of the same thing. As you continue down those spirals, the fifth was anger, sixth heresy, seventh level violent, eighth fraud. And by the way, if you read this, you'll know certain areas had more than one position. Ten in one level, four in the lowest level. When we get down to the lowest level, the lowest level Dante reserved for those who were guilty of treachery. They had been traitors to people or relationships. This could have been king or country. Could have been brothers. So for instance, Dante in this lowest, most significant, the worst of the worst, the lowest pit of hell, he's got a king who slew his brother Abel. He's also got there in the very lowest pit, right down there at the bottom, hell in Dante's version is not a fiery place, it's an icy place. So at the very lowest pit is Satan himself, and he's frozen in ice up to his waist. His great wings, he's trying to flap and get himself away. He's just recirculating the cold air, making sure his ice never thaws at all. He also has three heads. In his left and his right head, he is choosing, he is chewing uh, Brutus and Cassius who betrayed Julius Caesar. It was treachery, the sin of treachery again. Now in the middle head, in the middle mouth, can you guess what traitor, what act of treachery is represented in Satan's mouth? Judas. Everyone in first service knew that too. The traitor of all traitors, the treachery above every other treachery, Judas Iscariot in the lowest pit of hell being chewed by Satan's middle mouth. If you guys think about this, and don't we all, we stratify sin, right? We do, and and some of that's fine, right? Uh, We say all sin is bad, all sin falls short of God's mark, desire for us. Some, Some sins, though, we recognize can have greater repercussions for our own souls between us and God, or the repercussions that they might have for other people. Some sins can affect others more adversely than others. If we were with Dante and we were writing our version of Dante's Inferno, what would those levels of hell look like for us? What, how would you write that? If you've got nine layers and you're writing one sin after another, who's at the worst of the worst? Who's at the bottom of that pit? That's one question. Go forward with that. And then ask yourself this, where do, you, where do your particular temptations to sin lie? Do we place our own sins at the top? We're in limbo. We're really pretty good. We're not deserving of punishment. Where do we put our own sins in that list? But at the very bottom, the worst of the worst. Now we're in, we're still in the series called God's House. And this is a strange introduction to the series. But we're going through 1 Timothy. And this morning what Paul's pointing out, you remember we said in the introduction to the series that Paul wrote Timothy, his young protege, representing him in Ephesus, and he said, I'm writing, I hope to see you soon, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to you so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church, the church of the living God. That's what the church is. It's God's house. And this is what God wants us to know in his house. And this morning, this is what he's bringing up through Paul to Timothy and Timothy to us. This is what he's bringing up in God's house. God says you can't afford to lose track of the importance of the gospel message And that God is willing to save the worst of the worst. And by letting us know, God wants us in the household of faith already, through faith in Jesus, to know this. There's no one who has sinned beyond the grace of God. There is no one who has sinned themselves 
to a depth or a breadth by which God is not willing to reach down in grace in Christ and save them. That's the message we get today out of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to take verses 12 through 17. Paul's going to bring in his own conversion story to make this very point. God will forgive the worst of the worst, and his children need to bear that in mind as we think about sharing the gospel with others, how we look at others as well. So 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul's continuing, and he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because... I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And let me just pause so we don't get the wrong idea. When Paul says, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, he is not letting himself off the hook. He is saying, I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't believe the claim at that point. If you remember in John's Gospel, Jesus said, people will persecute you thinking they're rendering service to God. That's Saul of Tarsus before he became Paul the Apostle. He's not letting himself off the hook. He just says, I didn't know fully who and what I was doing or who I was acting against. He continues, verse 14, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul's saying, listen to this. Mark this down. Write it down. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners, that's us, and He says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, Christ came to save sinners, and I am the first of sinners. This is not a claim most of us want to make, is it? When he says, I'm the first, he means, I am the worst of the worst. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. Why did God show mercy? Saul of Tarsus, this mercy specifically, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Understand what Paul is saying about himself. He describes himself. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was blaspheming God's name, especially through Jesus. You remember, Jesus was accused of blasphemy because they didn't believe who, who he was who he said he was. Well, Saul of Tarsus is blaspheming God's name in Christ. He is persecuting, persecuting God's own children. Do you remember in Acts 9 when God knocks him down on the road to Damascus and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? In persecuting God's children, those of the household of faith, Jesus said, Saul was in fact persecuting him. This last description, insolent. Paul says, I was insolent. I was proud. I looked down at my nose at those lowly Christians. I mocked them and scorned them because they're down here and I'm up here. I'm better than they are. He was insolent. Blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent. Now, why... Back to the point, why did God reach down in grace and save Saul of Tarsus? What is the issue? What's the point? And Paul says there in verse 16, 
that God did it to use Paul as an example that if God was willing to save Saul of Tarsus, the worst of the worst, the world was on notice, sinners were on notice, and God's own children by faith were on notice that God was willing to save anyone. Saul of Tarsus was in the lowest pit of hell if this was Dante's Inferno. He was the worst of the worst. When we think of Paul, the apostle, we generally think of the guy that wrote the letters, this letter. We think of the guy that suffers for Christ's name, right? He's the epitome of godliness. But that's not where he started. So Paul's making the case, I was the worst of the worst. And God saved me so that everyone would know no one's sin puts them beyond the grace of God through saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you guys made your list, by the way, in your list, who's at the bottom? Who's the worst of the worst in your list? And you know, depending on our experiences in life, what have ha- has happened to us, what we know has happened to other people, our lists might vary a bit. If you read the Bible, do you guys know who's on the bottom of God's list? Biblically, this is Old and New Testament, and you get it most clearly in the Gospels by Jesus. The worst of the worst, Old and New Testaments, are not the sexually immoral. They're not the greedy. They're not the violent. They're not the swindlers, the thieves. They're the religious leaders who do not represent God, God's interests or serve those they were commissioned to serve. In God's economy, the worst of the worst are the religious hypocrites who are in it for themselves. Think of Dante putting the popes in hell for greed. Or also think of earlier messages we've already had here that Paul warned those leaders in Ephesus would rise up to accumulate disciples for themselves. They were leading not to honor God. They were not speaking the truth. Paul said earlier they were teaching things they hadn't received. Anything that was novel. They were creative so that they could accumulate followers for themselves. In the lowest pit of hell, so to speak, if this was Dante's Inferno, It's the religious, it's not the irreligious who are the worst of the worst. And that's where Paul says he was. I was the worst of the worst. I was a religious persecutor. I was not a nice guy. I was not a good guy. Listen to this from Galatians 1.13. He describes himself. We just want to bask in this for a while and how bad Saul really was, okay? Because there's no impact if we aren't emotionally connected to the kind of person God saved. So in Galatians 1.13, Paul says this, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. In our context today, if you say there's someone in the earth today violently trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, I think of people like ISIS. ISIS, those would be folks in Paul's company. The worst of the worst. Listen to this from Acts 26, verses 9 through 18. Are you guys doing okay? Is it cool enough? We were really sleepy during the Sunday school hour. It was so warm. So I'll throw something at you if your eyes close, okay? So in Acts 26, Paul's given his testimony. He's telling his story, who he was, who it was that God saved to Festus and Agrippa. And there he says, I locked up many of the saints in prison. Those Christians, their only sin was following Jesus Christ. I locked them up in prison. 
He says, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You think of the Sanhedrin. Jesus stands before them and they say He's guilty of blasphemy. What should we do? And they say, crucify Him. Put Him to death. Well, Saul says, well, that's me. When Jesus' followers came up for a vote, I said, kill them. I helped send them to death. In fact, if you remember in Acts 7, He's at the stoning of Stephen, the church's first martyr. He says, I punished them often in all the synagogues. This was a busy beaver. He's going around Judah to every synagogue looking for Christians to punish them. He said, I tried to make them blaspheme in this last phrase. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them. He wasn't mild manner. In raging fury, I persecuted Christians. So, when we think of Saul of Tarsus, we need to put him in a proper frame of mind. We need to be emotionally connected to the guy Saul of Tarsus says God reached down and saved. He's not a nice guy. So if you think in modern terms, Saul is like a German SS officer in World War II. They were doing the same things Paul did. Exactly the same things. They went house to house looking for Jews. They went house to house looking for Christians who were hiding Jews. And what did they do with them? They seized their property. They abused them. They put them on trains and sent them to death camps. It's exactly the same thing. Same dynamics. When we think of Saul of Tarsus, a German SS officer will do. You could also think of the Spanish Inquisition in the Roman Catholic days in which people whose only sin was not being Roman Catholic enough were seized, imprisoned, tortured, put to death at the stake, all kinds of ways. For many of them, their sin was only that they were Christians, that they had faith in Christ. So Paul's letting us know what kind of a guy it was that God reached down and saved when he saved Saul of Tarsus. Paul wants us to have an accurate sense of what kind of person he was so that we'll see how gracious God really is, how powerfully the Gospel affects change, and therefore, how incumbent on us it is to continue to share the message that makes apostles and martyrs out of monsters. Remember that he's writing to the church. The world is on notice that if God would save Saul, he'll save anyone. But guys, this is the flip side of that. The church is on notice that God is willing to save anyone. There's implications for us in simply the willingness to share the gospel with anyone, wherever they might be, whatever they might look like. So I received... Mercy for this reason, verse 16, as the foremost, as the worst of the worst, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience in me. Saul of Tarsus knocked down on the road by God and saved as an example to the world. If God would save Saul, He'll save anyone. Let me read you a short story. These are not my words. Thinking of Germany and SS officers. This is the Ten Boom family. They lived in Holland before and during World War II. Corey Ten Boom, many of you will know by name, is second on the left. These were devout Christians. These, this was a godly family. It was, it was a great family. It was a hospitable family. And when the Jews started being dragged off, the Ten Boom family took Jews in and they hid them in their home. And they were found out. And so the Germans came and they took the Jews and they took the Ten Boom family and all of Corey Ten Boom's family died under German persecution and in German death camps. That's what happened to them. This is a short story by her about God's willingness to save the worst of the worst 
and the implications for those who are already in God's family. These are her words. She says, uh, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. World War II is just barely over. I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and this next is actually a memory coming to her as she sees this guy walk, walk forward. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. This memory came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. She says this having survived a concentration camp. This is the most difficult thing she ever had to do. I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. 
But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Is that wild? True story. Can you imagine for Corey Ten Boom, this guy would have been the most treacherous betrayer, the worst of the worst she could imagine. And he's standing before her saying, God has forgiven me. Will you? This, is, this makes the point, doesn't it? God is willing to save the worst of the worst. And part of the implication for us is this. We have to be willing to go to the worst of the worst. We have to be willing to say the grace of God reaches even to that person or that place or that group. God is willing to forgive them as fully as He's forgiven me. And when someone has exercised faith in Christ, whatever their crimes, their sins were, if God has forgiven them, I must forgive them too. Isn't that good? It's convicting. Who's on your worst of the worst list? And just search, search your mind for just a second. If you think in your life, who has harmed you more deeply than anyone you can think of? Or for some of us, we say, it's okay if somebody hurts me, but if they hurt my child, my sibling, my parent, my friend, in your worst of the worst scenario, who is that? And do you actually believe that God is willing to save them? And by the way, if they're a Christian, have you forgiven them because they've been forgiven in Christ? You can see where this leads. God saves the worst of the worst. Uh, I'm going to play. This is three minutes, guys. It's really good. It's a brief testimony from a guy who you and I might have been a little slow to share the gospel with. grandmother was a prostitute. My grandfather committed suicide. My mother ran away with the best man at their wedding. And my father was an alcoholic gambling addict. And I was abandoned on the streets in a box at two years old. From the age of two to the age of 14, I lived in various upwards of 30 to 40 institutions and children's homes and foster parents. By the age of 12, I began to experiment with drugs. At the age of 16, I was living full-time on the streets. By the age of 21, I was in a maximum security prison with a serious drug habit. I was presented with the gospel by a local group of young men who visited a uh, community center where I was a drug dealer, living on the streets at the time. They started playing football in my area, and I heard about the Lord Jesus for the first time at 19 years of age. 
I um, was confronted with my sin in quite a stark manner, and I responded in just a starker manner. And I kicked against um, the whole concept of God's wrath. Later in prison, these men came to visit me, and uh, upon my release on my parole, one of the Christian men whose face I used to spit in gave me a place to live and gave me a home, which I could uh, call my own. I was then converted, not long after, by reading a Matthew Henry commentary, of all things. Praise the Lord for Matthew Henry. Um, um, And I um, realised very quickly, particularly in the book of Romans, that I needed to take responsibility for my own sinful life, my own sinful lifestyle, and not blame it on my poor childhood and others around me. And so for the first time, I began to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. By God's grace, I went back to school, finished my education, went to Bible college and became a proper Christian. Uh, I I got married to a wonderful woman, Miriam. I have two wonderful daughters, Kezi and Lydia. I planted a church several years ago, my first church in northern Brazil amongst prostitutes and street children. I have just finished planting my second church in the most deprived housing project in Scotland. I'm now looking uh, to plant a third church, and we're currently training young men to go and plant churches in the toughest housing projects in the country, of which over 50% have no evangelical witness or gospel whatsoever. I'd just like to say I'd like to praise the Lord for those men who had the courage to bring the good news to me all those years ago. I want to leave you uh, knowing this fact, never, ever underestimate the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he was thanking, thankful for those guys who were willing to share the gospel with him. They knew that no one was beyond the saving grace of God. So they were willing to go. This was a bad part of town. They were playing soccer so they could share the gospel with guys just like him. If you and I know, and this is tough sometimes, guys, it's possible to share the gospel with a lot of people and they don't come to Christ, right? It's not the message. The message, the Spirit still saves. You can share the gospel with confidence because it still saves and no one is beyond the grace of God. This uh, funny image here, we talked to or heard from a guy many years ago who was an evangelist in the Philippines and uh, there was a U.S. base there, and I think it was in Manila. Uh, he was in the town, and there on a, on a street corner was a tall, burly, big-strapping, very mean-looking American GI. And Bobby Martz was this guy's name. He was a very short, semi-round, curly-haired, cherubic-looking individual. And he was absolutely certain that God was telling him, go share the gospel with that guy. And he said he had a conversation with the Lord about that. Are you sure? That's what you want me to do. Do you see how big he is? Do you see how mean he looks? Are you sure you could lose your servant here? Is that really what you're after? But of course, he plucks up his courage and he goes up and he shares the gospel with the guy. And the guy that looks big and mean and burly comes to Christ in that moment, became a brother in faith that moment. There was no way to look at the outward appearance and say, yeah, he he will. No, he won't. Right? Because when we do that, We're looking through human carnal eyes. 
And God doesn't do that. But we do. God will save any. And that's the beauty. You know, in God's house, maybe in this house, maybe in this local church, we find that God's children are often those who formerly were the worst of sinners. Isn't that wild? Could that be true here? Listen to this list. If I'm making Dante's levels, I've got some options here. Tell me what you think of this list. How about sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers? How's that for a list? Going down. Worse and worse sins. And who's being described here? Because those aren't my words. That's from 1 Corinthians 6. And those are people who are Christians in Paul's day. He says, such were some of you. They were all of these things and so are we. By the way, even if you say, I came to Christ as a youth. I was blessed to grow up in a family where I knew Christ early. I've never lived a life that looked like Ms. McConnell's or anybody's like that. What you'll find is this. Give yourself time to grow up. You'll see the wickedness of your own human carnal heart. Because it's still there. While we're in this body, we have a wicked nature that just corrupts over time. It just gets worse. For us as Christians, that old sinful nature never gets better. That's why God crucified us with Christ when Jesus died. Because it doesn't get better. That list of whatever sins you want to think of, guys, all those are represented in the church of Jesus Christ. That if God saves the worst, He's willing to save any of us. I want to wrap up with this, where Paul wrapped up this thought. So, he's reminding the church, God will save anyone. In God's house, we need to know this. God will save anyone. The worst of the worst. We should be willing to take the Gospel to the worst of the worst. And when they believe in the Lord Jesus, like Ms. McConnell did, like Saul of Tarsus, we must forgive them also. And we welcome them as a brother or sister in Christ, whatever their past history was. That's the call. When Paul goes through that logic and his own testimony, he ends on this note. Remember that when Paul wrote letters, he usually signed them. In fact, he says, I always sign the letters in my own hand at the end. But he didn't write them. So he had a technical term is an amanuensis, which just means it's a secretary who wrote down his words. So Paul's dictating these letters, but he signs his name at the end. So can you imagine? He's just finished telling whoever's sitting there writing for him. He just said God saves the worst of the worst and he can't help himself. And he just says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't think he planned that. It's just this spontaneous response of worship when he remembers who he was and that God saved him. And that God will save anyone. And this gets to this point for us related to worship. Guys, if we find that we're lukewarm to God in praise and worship, we need to reflect and think again about who God saved us from. And by that I mean ourselves. The sins God forgave for us. had a conversation with a brother last week and he asked me, how are you guys doing, Kathy and I? And I said, well, you know, on one hand, we're, this is the best we've ever been. Ever. 
Our marriage is the best it's ever been. Our kids are raised. They all know the Lord. They're raising their own kids to grow up and know the Lord. God bless them. We pray for our grandkids, just like we prayed for our kids. Lord, would You bring them to Yourself early? Would You make Yourself known so that they can grow up in Your nurture and Your admonition? And we get to serve people full-time, pretty much both of us, and it's fruitful. And I said, you know, on one hand, it's great. It's just like, I feel like we're in our golden years already, whatever that means. We're there. I said, the flip side is this. That when I look back now at who I was, uh, when I look back now and see what I was when God saved me, and guys, I was a stud. I was tall and handsome and good looking, and the ladies liked me, and one particular. And you know, people that knew me thought I was a nice guy, and I was not a nice guy. I was carnal and I was lustful and I was, you, you name it, and I was there. And God reached down and saved me. And now, from my perspective today, when I look back at what I was, when God saved me, I marvel at God's grace. It's like I wouldn't have saved me. I wouldn't have reached down and picked up that kid, that 19 year old immoral, call me whatever you want. I wouldn't have. No way. I look back now and I see who it was God saved me from, the sins He saved me from. And guys, I, am, I feel more humble today than ever because my eyes are open to the grace of God in, ways, in greater ways than ever before. And also this, it's not just who I was. I, you know, my sinful nature just keeps corrupting over time. And when I see some of my thoughts and my motives today, I'm like, creepy gross what were you thinking why did you say that you know why would you intend that it's like my estimation of the grace of god just keeps growing because my eyes are open more and more fully to see what it was i was what kind of a person he reached down and saved if we have a vantage point to see our own sins Guys, we become worshipers. When we realize God saved me in spite of my sins, not because I was nice. Because we weren't nice. We weren't good. And God saved us anyway. We become worshipers. Because we're amazed again by God's grace. We're humbled by His grace again. And praise and worship is what comes out of that. It can't be otherwise. Let me leave you with this verse. This one just never grows old. And the key word today is the middle one there. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever, whoever, whoever believes won't suffer for their own sins, won't be in some level of Dante's Inferno or hell or the lake of fire, won't suffer for their own sins as they justly would otherwise, but will be forgiven their sins and will gain life to the ages in God's presence where there are pleasures and joys forevermore. How's that for a trade? Father God, would You open the eyes of our heart to the great grace by which God the Son came to earth and took on our humanity and took on our sins on the cross, paying fully the awful debt of sin, Lord, we could never pay. Lord, would You inflame our hearts just for humble fall on our face worship 
for a readiness to share the gospel with anyone you put in our path. God, would you help us to start prayerfully each day with, among other things, this question, Lord, who do you want me to talk to today about your son? In Jesus' name, amen.